Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. Hi, guys. So today's uh, podcast is sponsored by Helsa Education. They're a professional global development provider for medical practitioners. And actually, David, they're Australia's only university quality assured and CPD accredited certificate. And they also do a professional diploma in aesthetic medicine, dermatology, and a number of professional medical fields. Yeah. And for our listeners, they have a special offer, which is $200 off uh, when they enroll to do one of their courses. All you need to do is go over to the website, which is healthcert.com forward slash IA and sign up by the 31st of December. And by doing so, you will also go in the draw to win a free course enrollment, which is valued up to almost two and a half thousand dollars. That's fantastic. And just to be clear, um, the course is open for doctors, of course, but also nurse practitioners, as well as registered nurses. So it's a great course. Um, There's a nice hybrid of online or um, hands-on, depending on what suits your needs uh, and a number of different levels. Yeah. Go check them out. Website again is healthcert.com forward slash IA. And enjoy this episode, guys. Thank you. Injected Diaries Wednesday, Jay. We're back. We're here again. Well, it's chapter 10 now. I can't believe it. Chapter 10. It's flown by. And today we're joined by our first GP. So hopefully this is a different spin for everyone. Uh, good morning, Jenny. How are you today? Yeah, good morning. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, Jenny, why don't you first introduce yourself? So you're based down in Melbourne. Um, yep. I gather you've got your own clinic, uh, but why don't you tell us all about it and sell yourself? Okay. Well, my clinic's called Southern Cosmetics. It's in um, Sandringham, which is a bayside suburb in Melbourne. Um, And we have been here for nearly 11 years now. So when we started the clinic, it was actually, we started off with just two rooms and there was myself and a dermal therapist. And we didn't even have a a receptionist at that point. We just carried around a mobile phone (laughs) and took calls and we were both part-time. And then as time has gone by, we've sort of gradually expanded the clinic and increased our services and and bought some more devices as time has gone by. Uh, So now we eventually moved from our original two little rooms and we ended up taking over the whole building that we're in now, which is a converted house. So we've got five main consulting rooms. And at the moment, there's myself, there's three other doctors, there's two registered nurses, and we have a dermal therapist mm. as well, and we've got a number of reception staff. So we've, we've grown quite a lot over the last sort of 10 or 11 years. Yeah, that's fantastic. I was looking at your um, clinic website yesterday. I noticed there's no men. So does that introduce an interesting dynamic? Do, do you see <laughs> many men, or is that actually a positive? Do they come because they don't want to see a man? Well, the interesting part of that story is my business partner is a man. Ah, okay, oh, right. fair enough. Right, and he used to be on the website, but we took him off the website because <laughs> he's not actually doing any clinical work um, in the practice anymore. But how that all came to be is, you know, I'm a GP 
by training, but I had branched out into skin cancer medicine. Right. And my colleague or my business partner is also a GP who was doing, you know, probably 60, 70% skin, skin cancer medicine as well. And the building that we're in is actually owned by his general practice. Right. Or some of the partners in that general practice. And it was rented out to a radiology company. Um, and it was also used on a sessional basis by some allied health providers. And then the rooms that we eventually ended up going into became available. And it was actually him who said to me, you know, I've got an interest in aesthetics. I know that you're already doing aesthetics. Would you like to maybe start up a clinic with me and we'll go into that space? So that's what we did. Yeah. I guess one of the main topics we're talking about today, and we'll get into this as we progress through the discussion, is training, training for doctors, training for nurses. We're in a, an industry that's expanding um, very, very quickly um, with a lot of new players coming into the market. But I'm interested to understand what was your training like back then? Because I, me- I remember back in those days, sort of, you know, 15, 20 years ago when everything was so simple, we didn't know what we were doing. We were sort of injecting filler with impunity. We, you know, there was reps carrying around products in the back of their car. It was just, it was the wild west and it's difficult to find training today. So I can't imagine what it was like back then. So could you maybe just paint a bit of a picture for us in terms of how you sort of got started out and how do you acquire your skills and and sort of progress through, you know, these really murky sort of waters when, you know, pretty uncharted here in Australia up until that point? I was really lucky actually that I was mentored. Um, And when I first started doing some aesthetic medicine, I started it in my general practice. Mm. So I was a partner in a general practice in the southeast suburbs of Melbourne. And I I think I was working three and a half days a week in general practice. And I I had sort of three school-aged children at the time. So I was pretty busy. And uh, like a lot of female GPs, I was getting a little bit, I guess you'd call it burnt out. Um, I was suffering a little bit from every day when I arrived at work. I was sort of pepping myself up in the car on the way to work going, okay, I'm going to have a good day today. I'm not going to lose my temper. I'm going to stay calm because general practice is is hard, mm. um, especially now post-COVID. It's a very difficult um, environment. So, you know, I've got a lot of admiration for all the GPs that are out there on the front line. Uh, but I just was looking for some other skills to bring into my general practice to sort of try and save me a little bit from that daily grind. And that's how I became involved in skin cancer medicine. And I actually did one of the original health cert skin cancer medicine courses and and started doing some skin cancer medicine in my clinic. And coincidentally, at the same time, I was having some aesthetic medical treatments. Uh, And in the course of having those treatments, you know, I was having them uh, at a skin clinic that was attached to a plastic surgeon's rooms. And somebody there said to me, oh, you know, GPs or other doctors can lo- go and learn how to do these things. And I said, oh, can they? And that got me thinking. So I enrolled in an introductory Botox training course because Botox was the only toxin available in Australia at that stage. And I went along to an evening workshop, which was run by Stefania Roberts. Oh, oh yes, a good go. friend. Yeah. Her name keeps popping up. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as you can imagine, it was very entertaining. It was good fun. <laughs> we all got some hands-on experience and we actually all got to experience the treatment as well, which was good. Yeah. Uh, and then I went back into my general practice and the idea I was, was I was going to incorporate some injectables or at that stage only Botox into the practice. And then 
I sort of didn't know how to start and I didn't feel that confident in my own ability to deliver those services. So a couple of months went by and then my rep at the time, who is a registered nurse that you probably all know, Claire Casey. Actually, don't. Mm-hmm. No, no, no where's Claire but I can't okay. put a face to the name. So Claire worked at Allegan for many years, but she's a registered right. nurse and she's now got her own clinic in Bendigo. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but Claire was my rep in those days and uh, she rang me up and she said, oh, you, you haven't bought, you've opened an account, but you haven't bought any Botox. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I explained to her that I was feeling a little bit lacking in confidence. So she said, look, do you want to come along and do the introductory course again? And then we'll help you get started. Yeah. So that's what I did. I went to the course again, uh, got some more hands-on experience. And then they very kindly came into my general practice and uh, they brought a few vials of Botox. And they, we organised some staff to get some treatments and they sort of helped me with a bit of hands-on and then that way I felt a bit more confident to get started. And so I did some injectables uh, in my general practice uh, and then Allegan bought Inamed, the company that yep. uh, used to make collagen. Mm-hmm. So they also taught me how to do uh, collagen injections, which those days were really just for top lip lines and for the lip border. And then it sort of evolved from there as new products came out and I got training. Uh, And then how I came to be mentored was even though I was doing skin cancer medicine and and some aesthetic medicine in my general practice, it it was actually hard to separate the GP time and the aesthetic time. Mm. And I'd be doing aesthetic things and, you know, a crying baby would come in or a laceration (laughs) would end up in the treatment room and, it was just I was finding it was a bit difficult. So I decided to have a break from general practice and I went and worked a couple of days a week in a skin cancer clinic and I went and spent some time sitting in with Gavin Chan. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Gavin at that stage just had his rooms in Templestowe, but he was looking at expanding and opening another clinic and I uh, sort of was chatting to him about that and he was, you know, keen to train up some people uh, to work in his other clinics. So I sat in with him for six months uh, and he basically mentored me. Uh, and at that stage, I, I already knew how to do injectables, but I knew nothing about skincare. I knew nothing about lasers. Um, and, you know, Gavin very kindly, you know, educated me about all those sorts of things. And I worked with Gavin for a number of years after that. That's yeah. brilliant. Yeah, you've, you've reminded me of, of my path as well. I remember I think it was, yeah, it's about 14 and a half years ago, I went to my first Botox course, very simple thing, similar to what you just described. And I went there with good intentions and I enjoyed it and I went away and I thought, shit, now what? <laughs> how, how, how do I, how do I find people? How do I, how do I do this? How do I, how do I create a, a patient list, et cetera? And, and you're right. You, you then sort of almost have to think about that first before doing the course so then you've got your ducks lined up and, and yeah. you actually start something so yeah. you're right you end up seeing family friends begging everyone yeah. and yeah. just trying yeah. to get a little bit of momentum and and obviously doing some very conservative treatments until yeah. you feel a bit more comfortable it's a, it's a difficult thing and, and unless you're lucky and you find a mentor you're sort yeah. of stuck and, yeah. and this is the, the the question that crops up again and again what course do I do and then what do I do after that? So maybe we'll get onto that when yeah. we start talking about what, what yeah. your role is for health, sir. Um, I was going to ask yeah. you, um, Jenny, um, in relation to going out on your own 
and obviously we, we cover the medical side of things here quite a lot, but we started to delve into the business side of things as well, which is a, a, you know quite often overlooked and misunderstood by uh, many of us in the industry. So what was what was that like for you in terms of making that financial decision? You sort of stepping away from something very safe that you know, which is GP land. Um, I know you work with with the mentor, but you know that step of going out on your own and being financially responsible for this business and all the headaches and and things that you know you need to learn along the way. Not only the cosmetic treatments, but also you know the financial side. So, can you talk to that a little bit for us? Because there's a lot of people listening who are sort of in this position. Yeah, you're you're right. Actually, it is it is hard. And we actually, when we opened our business, our our major investment was we bought a Qtera Zeo platform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with all the different hand pieces and things that go along with it. And I think at that point in time, you know, it was a well over a $150,000 investment mm. and we needed to refurbish the rooms and, you know, purchase beds and other equipment and all that sort of stuff. So I think our original startup loan for our business was close to sort of $230,000. Yeah. Mm. Um, and how long ago and was Nick that? And uh, that was 2012. So, Yeah. I mean, if you put that on today's value, it's probably a lot more, a lot more money than that. Mm. Um, that's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. And um, so our original, you know, partnership was with MedPin, mm-hmm. um, you know, who provide uh, loans to doctors mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it, it was a bit scary actually because we guaranteed it personally. Yeah, okay. And uh, we basically just hoped that, people would come. Now, I was lucky in that I was working in a skin cancer clinic that's only about 10 minutes away from here, and I already had a group of patients that I saw in the skin cancer clinic that had expressed an interest in, you know, other treatments, whether it be laser or injectables. And it it was a happy accident, but it was probably, you know, one of the best things that, that worked out for us is that my building is next door to a general practice Mm -hmm. and that's a busy general practice. I actually work in there now. I do a a one session a fortnight of of skin cancer checks, but that's a very big, busy general practice and it actually gave us almost like a database that we could leverage off because, you know, we spent some time talking to the doctors in the clinic about the sort of services we could offer. And so we started out doing a lot of uh, consultations for acne and rosacea and pigmentation and those sort of skin conditions that we could potentially treat with our laser. Um, so not so much pushing the injectable side of things. That that sort of just grew organically over the years. Can I ask you, I think we were speaking about it on our last podcast with mm-hmm. Bobak yeah. um, Moini, and he said, you know, he's known many GPs try to set up aesthetics within a, a, a medical or a GP type practice, and it's never worked because, and you said it yourself, you've got crying babies and ill people, and then people trying to sort of shoe, shoehorn them in to have their Botox. It just feels odd. Do, do you agree that, that the two have to be separated, or, or have you ever seen a, a successful model where it can run under one roof? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the GPs that come along and do our health cert courses, which I know we're going to talk about in a little while, are trying to do just that. And so we do spend quite a bit of time talking to them about, well, perhaps, you know, how they can make that work or do they really need to maybe look Mm. outside of their general practice or do they need to rent a separate room and, and have a separate entrance and set it up 
so that it looks more like an aesthetic clinic and less like a, yeah. a GP room. So that that's a significant barrier to starting up, I agree. But I also, we when we started our clinic uh, in this area, so we're sort of about 20 minutes away from the CBD, maybe a little bit further in this area, there's we're sort of 10 minutes down the road from Brighton. I don't know if you yep. know Brighton in yep. in Victoria. And Brighton's got six plastic surgeons living and working in Brighton. So, you know, it's sort of well supplied with those sort of services. And we have our clinic that was 10 minutes down the road in Sandringham. And apart from that, there weren't too many other um, skin type clinics around. So we didn't really have much competition and mm. people didn't really know a lot about yeah. the sort of things that we were doing. So, you know, I think the current environment for people starting out is very different. Yeah, and I, I think um, it, you're right. It's it's a different patient mindset. I think that we're living in a world now where people expect almost specialisation or boutique yeah. kind of services. So I think that this whole era of go to one place to get everything done um, is is starting to I think it's starting to move in a different direction. But I think yeah, if you started out a long time ago and you've already got those clients and built those relationships, and it's fine. But I think starting that strategy now could prove a little bit challenging for people out there. Yeah, I mean, I train you know a whole bunch of people when I work with Allegan and, and other companies, and you often meet GPs who quite rightly think, well, I've got skills, I've got practical skills, I've got the medical knowledge and experience with working with patients. Why can't I just tack on? a bit of Botox on the end of my list. And it always seems so easy, but it, in practice, it never really works that mm. way because, you know, like you said, aesthetic patients expect some sort of customer service and kind of vibe, and it's not often yeah. your average GP practice. I think you're right. Yeah, I think there's some, some intangibles there for sure. I think um, also as a practitioner, I would imagine you're sort of changing gears. It's sort of like a different sort of mindset in a lot of ways, you know, dealing with people coming in with like, you know, your general aches and pains and flus and colds and then, hey, let's make you look beautiful today. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you tell me, is, is it a potential sort of mental game to sort of change into that almost different provider or, or not? Uh, or I'll yeah. take Jenny's lead on I, that. I, I mean, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, and yet we're still using the medical model, taking a history, examining, blah, 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 but it is a bit different. Yeah. It, you, you know, you're sort of... You're treating well people, and that 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 is the the paradigm oh. shift. Actually, I got I got a question for you, for you, Jenny. What 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 was the mental um, shift for you like dealing with patients that are coming to you because they have an ailment, they need attention, they need someone to help them, as opposed to dealing with someone who and I know there are some people in the, getting these treatments that you know might be bordering on dysmorphia and, and sort of maybe let's just remove those from the conversation for the moment. But for the most part, as a practitioner, how does that? How did that affect you dealing with that completely different sort of patient profile and energy um, and, and, and enjoyment in your role? Uh, look, I guess mentally for me when I switched from general practice and I went into skin cancer and, and particularly into aesthetics, because I really felt like I was a little bit out of my depth initially in aesthetics, particularly when dealing with lasers and, you know, I did a lot of hands-on laser and that sort of thing myself to get the experience. I went from, you know, being a partner in a general practice where I sort of really felt like I had it all under control and, you know, people would come in the door and it didn't really matter what their ailment was. I had a, I had a, a pathway and a plan for dealing with it to people walking in to talk to me in an aesthetic medical clinic and me thinking, what's my pathway here? What's my plan? Mm. 
so I, I very much felt out of my depth, probably for about six months. Yeah. Um, so it was more that mental shift. I went from being very confident in what I was doing on a daily basis to sort of feeling like I was really starting at the beginning again. And it was a really steep learning curve. Um, but it was enjoyable. Yeah. And, uh, you know, luckily I'm really interested in skin and skin treatment. So it, and lasers are actually can be quite good fun. So I enjoyed that aspect of it. But, uh, now, and one of the things that I often say to the doctors that are, uh, uh, coming along to do our training is that when I was doing general practice, people would come in and unload their problems on you and expect you to help them solve them. And the difference is, I think, in aesthetic medicine, we've still got those sort of relationships with a lot of our patients. They're still coming in and they're telling you about what's going on in their life and they're sort of unloading a little bit on you, but they don't expect you to solve it. So that really takes a lot of mm. what, you know, part of my mental load was when I was yeah. doing general practice off. Yeah. And also I think, you know, there's a, I think when people are sick, and you make them better, it's like there's an expectation. So in some ways it can be a bit of a thankless job when you're dealing just on the medical side, whereas with the aesthetic side, it's, it's amazing. I mean, I've heard Jake talk about it on lots of occasions. You know, people are like genuinely thankful. It's like you've become this really important person in their life, not to say as a GP or not, but it's almost like, you know, you're dealing with, you've changed people's perspective on how they feel about themselves in a lot of ways. And there's almost, I'm, I guess the question is, is there more job satisfaction from, um, to both of you, really, in terms of that sort of different patient uh, interaction. Well, I kind of joke about it, but you know, you can take someone's appendix out and save their life, and they're like, "Oh, cheers, doc." <laughs> and then you do some fillers on someone, and they come in, and they've had all this beautiful feedback from their friends and family, and everyone says how rested and wonderful they look, and you change their psyche. Yeah, and it, it's seemingly more powerful, even yeah. though you haven't saved their life. It's yeah. very strange. How do you feel about that, Jenny? I agree with you. I mean, I think there's certainly an element of that and it's, you know, not unusual sometimes But if you sort of have the mirror in front of a patient or you show them their before and after photos, you know, I've had the odd patient sort of get up off the couch and give me a big hug and (laughs) and say, oh, you know, I can't thank you enough. I'm so, you know, I'm thrilled with the way I look. And that's actually obviously very rewarding and that was something that I I struggled a little bit with when I, I decided to leave general practice in that, you know, you you feel a little bit like perhaps your contribution, if you like it, from a, the medical side of things, perhaps isn't quite the same um, to society, and and you know that that sort of longer term relationships you have with people over, you know, difficult challenges in their life, you sort of lose a little bit of that. But I was pleasantly surprised that. You know, I do feel like I'm making a real change for a lot yeah. of patients. I wanted to ask you, actually, um, I struggled with sort of the mental battle of leaving hospital medicine, and I've spoken to many other doctors. Uh, I know a doctor, Stephen Land, he's one of our yeah. patrons. He was an ED doctor for many years, and he's finally made the jump to full-time aesthetics. And Tim Pierce has spoken yes. about the same thing. We all have this guilt struggle we think we're going to be judged or we're all vain and greedy doctors only interested in money did you have to square that with yourself and and like maybe your family or or your husband or whoever um well I think if you spoke to my husband and my children they'd probably say that you know when I changed over to aesthetics you know I was probably a better wife and a better mother and a nicer (laughs) person to be around just because I wasn't coming home frazzled at the end of the day sort of Mm. um you know 
first thing I'd do is open the fridge and, you know, reach for the bottle of wine and say, don't <laughs> talk to me, I've had a bad day sort of thing. But, um, you know, so it, it, it was it, it was good for me from that point of view. I, I certainly, you know, I, I, I felt calmer and I felt happier um, when I left general practice, which is a little bit sad. But um, there is there was a perception when I went off to do aesthetic medicine that you were sort of going to the dark side. Mm. And you've called it people, the dark side dark before, side. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And there was a perception that it, you were chasing the big bucks, yeah. Um, which isn't really the case, I think, for most of us doing aesthetic medicine. You know, yes, it can financially be rewarding, but you've got to put in the hard work to get there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think those doctors or, or even nurses who have trained who have come where I, I noticed that the motivation is more, I hate hospital versus I actually really passionate about this. They quickly find out themselves. I don't have to tell them that unless they have the passion, the enjoyment, it's, it's very hard to learn. Mm. Don't force yourself to see aesthetic patients and learn technical skills when you're not really into it. So mm. I think those people quickly drop off or, or what sometimes they do is they try and keep it very simple. They'll say, I only do Botox. I don't do fillers. I only do these areas of the face and they sort of try and, you know, mm. fudge it into, in, into what they're doing. And I don't know, I never really feel like they get it because they're not, no, they're not I, really I wanting to do it. All in. Yeah, yep. I agree. Yeah. All in. <laughs> Only way to go. Yeah. Um, so, Jenny, so tell us a little bit about your your role with HealthCert. They're, they're our sponsor of today's podcast. Yep. So thank you, HealthCert. So you're the the chair of their aesthetic medicine course, and they've got a whole bunch of courses. So if you go to the website, there's many, many courses, and they're a global organization. But w tell us about your, your role with the, the aesthetic medicine course. Well, how the HealthCert aesthetic medicine courses evolved was um, – most of us who are now, who were originally involved in the health cert courses, and most of us are still involved, actually have a skin cancer background. So it's probably a little bit different to most other aesthetic courses in that, you know, all of us that came into uh, being involved with it didn't, we're not just purely aesthetic medical practitioners. We all actually came predominantly from either a GP or a skin cancer background. And uh, in the early days of HealthCert, they, they mainly just had skin cancer courses. And it's, it's really rapidly evolved over um, the years. And, you know, now they offer all, all sorts of courses. But uh, that has sort of grown organically as the need has arisen. And certainly during COVID, as you can imagine, there was a huge demand for online education. Uh, but when we set up the aesthetic medical courses, We'd actually been speaking to um, some of the guys at HealthCert about, you know, introducing aesthetic medicine into their curriculum. And, you know, we just, there were a few of us who'd done the skin cancer side of things with them who were interested in doing it. And, and we just sort of got together and had a bit of a meeting and sort of sat down and trashed out how we thought it would work. And we actually, I mean, when I look at the original, original courses now, they seem a little bit, you know, very basic, but um, we sort of sat down and we hashed out what we all thought our strengths were mm -hmm. and we actually wrote the modules for the different aspects of the course with some guidance. They have, a, a you know, somebody who is in charge of making sure that their education, uh, their educational all of their educational offerings comply with certain standards. So 
we were guided with their education advisor by into sort of writing a proper course. Right. And so, I mean, there's a lot of people offering courses around the world, you know, varying from sort of one day um, courses, weekend courses. There are some of the like large chain clinics that sort of undertake their own extensive training programs. Um, but as far as I'm aware, um, none of those or very few of those have any sort of regulatory um, recognition. And so what what sort of qualifications do petite people potentially walk away with by conducting these courses and who are they, I guess, approved or regulated by and what does that kind of mean to them as a practitioner and potentially to the patient as well? Um, that's a very good question. And basically what we had to do when we set up the course initially is we had to comply to the RACGP standards right. so that people could get uh, CPD points. Yeah, and the uh, RAC. Continuing the professional. Royal Australian College of General of, Practitioners. Yeah, just outside of Australia. I was, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I understand. For the international <laughs> listeners, they might understand that acronym. Yeah, sorry yeah. to people in Zimbabwe. <laughs> yeah, yeah we'll, we'll, we're looking out for you. Okay. <laughs> Well, funnily enough, we do have people from overseas sometimes oh, doing the courses. So it, it's interesting. Yeah, Jay. Uh, particularly, yeah. <laughs> particularly uh, during COVID, you know, we had you know people joining from other countries who, you know, they were doing the course because they were, you know, looking for an aesthetic medical course. But primarily, the initial um, offerings were for um, GPs who were interested in aesthetic medicine, but they also wanted some CPD points. Uh, the courses are promoted as being university recognised and HealthCert have partnerships with Bond University and, um, you know, some of their other courses are partnered with uh, other universities. But again, because of that, we have to comply with certain standards and, and those standards are mainly around uh, assessments and and completing tasks and doing a certain number of hours and all those sorts of things. So uh, at the end of it, we've got three levels of the course. So we have the um, I'm going to get this wrong. We have the professional certificate of aesthetic <laughs> I've got medicine. It here. I should know. Yeah. We've got the professional certificate of aesthetic medicine, and then that leads into the advanced certificate of aesthetic medicine, and then that leads into what's called the professional diploma of aesthetic medicine. Um, it isn't, however, a diploma of aesthetic medicine, and I think that's an important distinction that um, you come out of it with this qualification that's called the Professional Diploma of Aesthetic Medicine, but in terms of it being recognised by other aesthetic medical bodies at this stage, it's not. Um, it, it's purely recognised for um, the College of GPs training um, for CPD points, and it's also recognised, as I said, in part by Bond University. But, uh, you know, as you know, in Australia, and I'm not sure what the situation is in, in a lot of other countries that you might have listeners, uh, there's no current mm. agreed training pathway for aesthetic medicine. So, you know, we're hoping to be involved in that discussion and try and get our courses recognised. But, yeah, I think there's a long way to go with all of those sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, as the chair of the course, I mean, if you had an unlimited budget and you could do whatever you like, what would you do that you would think is a gold standard course that, you know, would merit recognition? Because we, we've mm. spoken about it so many times and we have had colleagues on from other countries. Uh, Holland is the only company that does Country. have – sorry – what did I say? Company. Sorry, country. <laughs> Too much coffee. Yeah. Um, where, where they actually have a recognized, you know, training pathway and cosmetic physician or cosmetic medicine is 
uh, a specialty. Yeah. Uh, and and they've had their own problems because it's very expensive and it's not mandatory. So most people go, well, screw that. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to spend 200,000, uh, whatever the Dutch currency is. I can't remember yeah. now. Yeah, it, well, it felt like it had become almost like a... Um, a money grab a by money, the government. Yeah, like, yeah, it was... <laughs> so anyway, so back, back to Jenny. Uh, well, yeah, what would you do? Because we argue about this, we squabble about this, and, and my own issue with it, uh, and this isn't a dig at GPs or nurses or anyone else, but each group has its own agenda, its own thing that it needs from aesthetic medicine, but it doesn't look after all injectors as a pan group. Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And it, it's, it's, I don't, you know, sort of want to get off topic and have a whole discussion about, you know, where we're going from an aesthetic medical point of view in Australia. But I think as doctors, uh, I feel like we've almost been sidelined a little bit in the aesthetic medical space. Um I'm lucky, as I said, we've got an established clinic. It's been going for a long time. But certainly the conversations I have with a lot of the people doing our courses is it's hard for them to actually get into this space now mm, because yeah. it is dominated by chain clinics and, um, you know, uh, there's a high proportion of, of injectors that are, are nurses now compared to doctors. So the, the pendulum has really swung as far as that's concerned. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for all our nurse injector colleagues, you know, some of the best injectors I know are nurses. But I think when we look at, okay, how do we have a good training pathway for everybody and how do we make that uh, something that's appropriate for practitioners from different uh, parts of medicine, you're right, we need to get all those different organisations on board and, and try and come up with something that's seen as, as a, a good pathway for all the different practitioners that want to do aesthetic medicine now. Yeah. And, you know, that includes dentists and paramedical practitioners as well are looking to get into the aesthetic yeah. medical space. It, it is becoming competitive. And I think that, um, you know, this is almost like what the rest of the world is like. I mean, if you're, and I'm not sort of wanting to downplay anything in terms of anyone's skill sets, but if you hire a lawyer or a plumber or a dentist, you know, they're everywhere. The competition is extraordinary. And I think for a long time in this industry, you could just, you know, up until the last couple of years and the chain clinics really started to get a stranglehold on the industry, you could open up pretty much anywhere and be busy immediately. And now I would say the average injector needs to work for, I don't know, at least two to three years probably now, depending on where they're located and their skill set and other varying factors until they build up a really solid base. And, and this is basically what it takes to be in business these days. I mean, this is this is not unusual for any other industry. It is just because there's been this insane growth, this almost honeymoon period, and now the reality of tougher economic conditions, increased competition, consumers becoming more demanding and educated. Mm. And that's why it's becoming you know, increasingly um, important. And maybe this is something you should look at for your course is actually helping people on the business side um, because that's where a lot of people fall over, especially now in this industry. And I think that the divisiveness between the different um, groups within the space, um, whilst it has medical implications as well, I think just from an overall perspective from the average patient on the street when they see these horror stories and this squabbling all it does is alienate alienate potential patients from this space the more that we can as a group come together weed out the people whether they be a nurse a doctor a plastic surgeon doesn't matter if you're not up to standard you shouldn't be injecting um and that will attract more patients 
to our space, which is then more for everybody. And that's kind of my thought on where we're at at the moment. We're at this kind of interesting transition. I don't know what you think about that. That's just yeah. kind of my, my rant for the day. Well, <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about um, what Jenny sees as competence because yeah. you know, she's training people. But I just wanted to sort of balance the chain thing because I, I, I sometimes feel like we, we chain bash on this podcast. But, you know, that's how I met you. Yeah, of course. Um, oh, I, yeah. I met you uh, when you owned a chain clinic and I was a doctor working mm. in a chain clinic. And I can personally say maybe this isn't the the rule, but the exception, but I was very valued. Yep. Um, clinics who have a doctor on site are, 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 you know, whether it's true or not, are often seen as, you know, it's a little bit special because it's unusual, I guess. Yeah. You can manage your own complications. You don't have to do the whole, you know, telescripting, yep. et cetera. So it's actually, if there are any doctors listening and actually you want to get into aesthetic medicine, maybe do Jenny's course and then, you know, there are options in chain clinics. Yeah. I'm, not, I, I, I'm not saying you should or you shouldn't, but there are options. It's not closed if you're not a nurse, mm. is all I'm going to say. But going back to competence, I mean, you know, when people come through your course, um, and obviously you've got different levels of your course and, and maybe more time and so on, but at, at what point do we deem an injector as basically safe to go out in the real world? I mean, that that's mm. really what David was getting at. So mm. what, how do you we, rate, how do you grade that? Stage, yeah. Unfortunately, we at this stage that we don't assess competency in injecting. So what we actually do is we um, we do have a hands-on workshop in the professional certificate of aesthetic medicine where people do get hands-on experience mm -hmm. and they do get to inject patients with botulinum toxin. Um, but uh, you know, we unfortunately, it's from a logistics and an insurance point of view, mm. we are not in in the position at the moment to do hands-on training fillers and that sort of thing. So what we do is, and our course is is probably a little bit different in that because we came to it from the general practice and the skin cancer fields, we built a course that. Inject injectables are a, a component of it, and certainly they're the most popular component of it, and they're the uh, the modules that everybody wants to do and get their hands on. But we also talk about all of the skin analysis, cosmeceuticals, chemical peels, lasers, and we have a whole module in the introductory course on office-based procedures, so oh. things that people could go back into their practice and start doing straight away, like skin needling and PRP and maybe mm. even LED light therapy, that sort of thing. So we deliberately built it from a slightly different uh, – people coming into it are coming from a slightly different perspective in that a lot of people who want to do aesthetic medicine just want to do injectables. Yeah. But this is more for all of the different parts of aesthetic medicine. Um, so we, we cover all of that. And, of course, we cover injectables because that's such a big part of it. But uh, it, it's really about giving people exposure to and um, a lot of the theory behind all the other sorts of things that we can do. Absolutely. I think that's really important. I yeah. mean, you know, even for myself, I'm an injector. I don't use any devices of note. But, you know, when there's a patient's in front of you and they book in, they don't know what they need. Sometimes they've got rosacea and they think that, you know, injectables mm. might help and, you know, maybe <laughs> there is a role for mycotoxin. Well, but, you know, they, they, the patient doesn't know, but you need to be the expert to, to guide them on or say, well, I don't do that, but Dr. So-and-so does well, down the road. And also, I mean, all the training that I've seen done um, is very super fit, like very light on on the theoretical side. It's like, okay, here's a few uh, 
you know, uh, PowerPoint slides on, you know, the theory of toxin and how it works and this is how you inject it. And the rest of it is all clinical. Left up to you. Yeah, it, there's there's not a lot of theory. I mean, maybe it's changed since I've sort of no, seen it done. The, but your average course is still yeah. like that and it's, that's how I learned. Yeah. You know, there's a bit of pharmacokinetics and no one cared about it and then you got on and injected a glabella and thought you were a hero. <laughs> so <laughs> that, I, I think and those courses are still running. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so how long do, do your various um, certificates and, and the diploma la- or run for? Because some of it's online, some of it's, you said, hands-on. Yeah, so we, we had to change it pretty dramatically, as you can imagine, yeah. when COVID hit. So what what we used to do was we used to have a weekend and we used to do them in different states in Australia. And the weekend course consisted of doing one of the levels of the course. So all day Saturday, all day Sunday was either the professional certificate, the advanced certificate or the professional diploma. And we went, we, we taught the modules live and at the end of each module there was a practical component um, where, you know, we either did a demonstration or we taught some hands-on skills and we d- delivered it in person. And then when COVID hit, what we did was we changed to being an online course and, you know, we had to, unfortunately, we lost all the practical component because we could only deliver deliver it online. And what we do now is we have the online component that people can do in their own time at home and then they can come to one of the workshops that we then have so we have these they're optional but we have these optional one-day workshops for all the different levels of the course where you come and spend the day and again we do it in different um, states in Australia and we basically do a, a you know at the introduction to each module we do a quick little rehash of the theory but then we do all the practical things that we weren't able to do when we had to change mm. to delivering it online and that way of delivering the course is probably what we'll stick with, I think, because it's been very popular because it means that people can work through the courses in their own time. Mm. They don't have to take time out of their lives or their schedules or whatever and, and uh, you know, go and do the course in person. And I actually think um, people, because they are doing it online and they're doing it at their own pace and we're not trying to get through it all in a weekend, I feel like people do have a better understanding of, of everything that we're we're trying to teach them, and then they come along and they do the workshops, and we get to meet them in person. Mm. Fantastic! I wanted to ask about your own training. I saw a week or two ago you were in Bangkok um, with Galderma doing their sort of Gain Academy, or was it mm. Gain Academy? I don't yeah, know exactly I what it's so. called. But um, yeah, what what were Gain. you doing? Were you there as a customer, sort of being schmoozed by Galderma, <laughs> or were you there as a trainer upskilling? A uh, bit of both. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, basically what it was, it was uh, the KOLs or key opinion leaders from Galderma in Australia. Uh, so there was a whole bunch of us that went over and it was a meeting for Asia Pacific. So it was predominantly doctors from, uh, you know, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, Indonesia, Thailand, uh, all over the region and Australia and New Zealand, obviously. And what it was was uh, an introduction to their new uh, patient assessment tool mm-hmm. and a sort of standardised way of uh, doing a patient assessment, which is a, a little bit more holistic in that it includes skin quality, not just the sort of things that we would focus on as injectors. And then it gives you, once you've done the assessment, it then gives you a framework 
um, and a starting point for how you go about um, planning your injectable treatments for the patient, but yeah. also talking to them about you know other aesthetic treatments that they might need, whether it's uh, laser or whatever. So it was uh, it, it, there was quite a, a big emphasis on uh, skin quality improvement as well as injectables, but the new program, you know, it's nothing, it's not a new way of injecting or a new way of delivering the treatments that we already deliver. It's a new way of thinking about the assessment and a way to work out how to prioritise, you know, different areas that need addressing for different patients. So it was actually really good. Yeah. I mean, I'll ask you as a GP, because you said right at the start, when you're a GP, often your treatment plans are very protocolized and you go down a flow chart of, well, I've tried this one, I'll now try, you know, drug B, et cetera. So when you do your consultation and maybe plan your own plan, your aesthetic treatments, do you ever sort of have a, a similar sort of algorithm in your head or or is everyone so bespoke that, that there's no one, you know, quite the same? Because I have to say, the more I've done this, the more I've actually become protocolized and how I go about it because I, I do think that you know if you have systems and processes it actually becomes much easier even if you've got a very complicated patient it it sort of simplifies things and and you can sort of chip away at things in a in a more ordered way I mean I, I don't know I don't know how to say that any other way but even for my consultation forms I've now sort of forced myself, even if the patient isn't even asking about their skin, to ask about their skin and to deliberately look at it and to ask them, do you ever suffer with redness, dryness, pigmentation, blah, 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 blah. So I'm forcing myself to sort of cover all angles, I guess. Mm. Yeah, no, and I think that's a, a good way of doing it because uh, basically, you know, it's a little bit like... Um, you know, when we're talking to patients about injectables, if they've got a lot of sun damage or they've got acne or they've got rosacea, yeah, we can, we can you know, stop them frowning or we can make their lips look a little bit plumper. But if you're not addressing their skin, are you really doing them any favours? So yeah, yeah. I think it's really good as aesthetic practitioners to, you know, try and be a little bit more, I don't know if the word is holistic, mm. in the way that we do assessments because it, it, I think aesthetics, unfortunately, has become very injectables driven. Yeah. And it, I think it's good to actually take a step back and and, and say, oh, hang on, what what's the best thing for the patient? Because yes. at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Yeah, and I, I don't know whether you actually need the practical skills to perform these treatments, but to understand what's going on yeah. and be able to refer yeah. them, whether it's within your own practice or to um, relationships mm. you have with other providers so that you can actually, as you said, take care of that patient holistically. Because a lot of the time people might be drawn to an issue on their face and yeah, there might be a wrinkle there, but it's actually the pigmentation that's drawing the eye there. It could be rosacea that's making their skin look older than what it is. And yeah, I mean, all these sort of treatments work hand in hand. You can't, it's not like you can just treat one thing and expect the, you know, the whole sort of image to change. It has to sort of be holistic. Yeah. And I'm honest with my patients. I say, look, I'm not going to benefit financially from this. I don't do lasers, but I know someone next door who does. So if you want to look your best, if I'm here to optimize you, we, we, we do need to cover that angle as well as the wrinkles and you yeah. know, the sagging. Um, going back to your, your Galderma thing in Bangkok. So what, what was actually offered to you as trainers? Was it lectures, any hands-on? Uh, did you, what, what were your sort of key takeaways that you, that you might put into your own practice? Um, no, it was delivered in a conference format. So we, well, sort of like a conference and workshop format. So we weren't doing any hands-on. But um, 
we were going through the different – well, they, they had patients, predominantly Asian patients, that, uh, and they had some, you know, experts from all over the region, including from Australia, and, uh, you know, did patient assessments using this sort of standardised assessment tool and then worked through a treatment plan. And there was some live injecting and uh, that sort of thing. But, you know, the, it was it was actually – I don't have a big Asian – patient population in my practice and and most of the the patients being treated were Asian and most of the doctors uh, performing the treatments were Asian and it it was actually really interesting the different perspective that they had about you know some issues that you know they they all complained all of the patients complained that they were saggy Mm. and I looked at them all and thought that's not saggy (laughs) Uh, so it was just it was really fascinating the the different sort of perspective that the, both the doctors and the patients had from that region. But it, it was actually just interesting to see a different approach to you know dealing with with those sort of patient concerns. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting seeing different beauty <coughs> standards, isn't it? We've we've covered that on the podcast, yeah. and yeah, even my Asian patients they will not tolerate the most minor wrinkling, you know, particularly around the eye. They just do not want it but they want a very curvaceous face, whereas our Caucasian patients want that sexy sort of hollow under the cheekbone. So very, very different. Um, Going back to training and and your own training, and we've gone through COVID and you said that your course has gone online and everything's changed. I mean, where do you think training's going in the future? I mean, do you think we will stick with this hybrid model of, you know, online and a bit of injecting? Do you think moving forwards we could sort of merge that and do augmented reality injecting? And I don't know, where are we going? Yeah. Well, augmented reality, I mean, that's a a great concept because, you know, when you think about some other areas where people learn hands-on skills, um, even something like uh, CPR, I mean, you do it on a dummy. You're taught to do it on, you know, a, a, a baby dummy or a adult dummy, and you learn how to intubate them, and you learn how to, um, you know, apply the defibrillator. So, you know, we don't really have we, we've got some, you know, injecting models that we use in our courses that people can have a bit of a play with. But I think that would be the next step from yeah. a safety point of view, rather than saying to people, "Okay, there's a live patient. I'm going to show you how to inject," because that, you know, there's a lot of yeah. safety issues around that so something like augmented reality would yeah. be would would you know is probably where we all need to be looking mm. yeah i mean it's not like you can just go oh i'm just gonna um i'm just, gonna, <laughs> I'm, just I'm just gonna give this patient an occlusion so we can just test them and see what you see what your emergency protocols are like yeah I mean, it's, exactly. it's tricky i mean the one thing that the pharma companies would certainly be interested in scaling that training. Yeah. So rather than just flying, you know, a handful of you to to Bangkok, you know, imagine 20,000, 50,000 injectors all learning together with some sort of augmented hands-on where you're all doing it at the same time. I mean, the economies of scale must be very uh, attractive, I guess. You have to talk to your friend, Professor Shafi from uh, yeah. the UK. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, funny you mentioned that. I remember as a surgeon, we, we had a... Uh, like a training model. It's one of the first, um, they called it a tactile feedback model. So it was a bit like a, a box basically, but when you're watching the screen, you're looking basically in someone, in someone's abdomen and you're removing the gallbladder. Uh, but you had tactile feedback from, from the, uh, the laparoscopic tools. So if you sort of touched 
like something op- like that game operation yeah <laughs> well no no electric shocks <laughs> but like it, it felt more real and and this was like you know 12 years ago right. so it's probably come a long way I, i'm sure then. it's come a long long way yeah. um so yeah I, I do think there's there's a role for that now your other thing that you do is you're a complications expert for amet uh you're a field expert i'm a field expert for belkyra but you, i'm guessing you do more uh general complications or have i got that wrong yeah Mm. Okay. Oh, well, um, no, I, I mean, I'm a field expert for AMET, but, uh, you know, being from Victoria, you know, we have Greg Goodman in Victoria, we yep. have Steph Roberts in Victoria. So, you know, any sort of major complications often go to them, which, you know, Steph's got the ultrasound skills and, you know, Greg's obviously the expert. Um, but, uh, you know, what I do find is that most of the sort of complications that that people are are ringing up about are, you know, just swelling, redness, you know, this has happened two weeks after I've done this, you know, the patient's come out in a rash, Uh, you know, I'm I'm dealing with more skin things and and those sorts of things. Yeah. Fortunately, no major complications so far. Do you think there's um, an element of practitioners not advising patients correctly on i mean a lot of these things you've described are essentially side effects like bruising swelling those kinds of things to be expected and i think there's there's almost an expectation from a lot of patients and i don't know where it's come from that you know swelling and bruising something's gone wrong with my treatment i wasn't expecting this that seems to be the majority of complaints that i hear Mm. or you know concerns coming through from patients Do do you sort of have to deal with that and do you think there's something going on in our consultation process where we're not you know advising strongly enough that these things are they're not doesn't mean something's gone wrong. This is you know you're putting a needle in someone's face. There's a chance, there's a chance you're going to get some a little bit of trauma from that. Mm. Yeah, look, I think that's an element of it, and I think there's also an element of uh, downplaying the risks. Yeah. I, I certainly you know because you know I I you know have a medical background. I guess I probably upplay the risks if you like. I I don't. Um, you know, I don't. You know, you don't want to talk your patient out of having the treatment because you carry on so much about. You know, these are potentially very serious risks of these treatments. But uh, I, I'm very honest with patients about what the risks are, and and particularly, for instance, you know, if we're talking about glabellas and noses mm-hmm. and and those sort of really high risk areas to inject. Uh, you know, I talk to patients about you know the the possibility of, of a visual problem and what the likelihood of that occurring are. But, you know, say, for instance, if it's a little bit less than one in 100,000, I always say to patients, but you don't want to be the one. So you have to be aware of what the risk is and you have to sort of take that risk on board. And, you know, so patients will often say to me, so if, if it was you, would you do it? And I think that's a very interesting question. Would I have my nose injected? Would I have my globella injected? And the answer to that is probably no. So they're the sort of conversations that I'm having with patients. Mm. Interesting, yeah. Um, where do you stand with the role of ultrasound? You mentioned Steph does it. I do a little bit of it. Have you have you had a little play or is it on your radar to maybe to try? I don't know if you can see my ultrasound device sitting there. Oh, we can't see it. Me. No. Which one do you have? Uh, the Clarius. Oh, okay, perfect. So, oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, I can see so, that. Yeah, it was behind your head. Um, yeah, what, what what are your initial thoughts? I mean, how long have you had it? Where do you use it currently and where do you think you will use it in the future? Uh, yeah, all of those are very good questions. So I bought the Clarius 
during our long lockdown in Melbourne last year. So it was about this time last year. And my plan was to uh, get the ultrasound. We were in lockdown. I couldn't treat any patients. I was going to try and upskill. Oops, sorry. I was going to try and uh, upskill myself to um, learn how to use it. So I was doing webinars and you know watching demos and all that sort of stuff because I couldn't get any hands-on training because it was a lockdown. Um, and not surprisingly, you know, and I'm sure Jake, because you know a lot more about ultrasound than I do. Uh, I found it really difficult. I found it mm. really hard. Um, and, you know, even though I've been watching because uh, Clarius provide a whole lot of webinars and, and they have, you know, can, uh, lots of different webinars that you can you can view and, and I've done a lot of that. But when I'm physically in my clinic with a patient and I'm trying to do an ultrasound, it's nowhere near as clear as it always is when you see it in the webinars and I get a little bit confused sometimes about um well is that what i actually think it is mm. and uh, you know so it's it, it's a sort of an evolving skill and I, i'm 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 trying to get more into the habit of doing ultrasound on patients on a regular basis but mm. yeah I, i've got a long way to go no I, I feel the same as you to be honest i mean i don't want to sit here and paint myself yeah. as some sort of expert i'm definitely not i'm i'm newer than you um but i just think that it's just one extra layer of, well, something that I can actually practically do and, and look. Patients certainly feel more comfortable that something extra is happening and you can show them. You can say, oh, there's the filler, that black blob, and mm. there's your bone and there's your muscle and so on. So it's just taking it to the next level, but but I don't want to use it as a security blanket of you know, guaranteed success or, mm. or safety. That, that That's really not what it is. Yeah. But it's mm. just one extra layer um, that... I can just do in, in, in a minute. I can just look. Yeah. So mm. I, I just think it's sort of, I'm not for or against it. I just think it seems logical that if you could do it, why not? Mm. Well, it's, I think it's like when I've seen these um, devices in action and the way the screen looked, it's, it's sort of hard to make heads or tails, especially for <laughs> someone that's a lay person, see what you're looking at. So it's like, it's like learning a language. And I think that if you think about how long it took you to learn English, yeah, <laughs> you know, you're actually, you know, it's going to take probably a couple of years of, you know, repeated um, exposure and practice to actually become competent with it. But I, I, from my perspective, from a business perspective and understanding the patient mindset, I, I think it definitely is the way it will go. Um, it'll be like, you know, driving a car with the reverse camera on it now. Yeah, you can probably park your car without it, but it's a little bit safer if you've got if you've got something there. So I think that's and the technology will get better. I think that people will realise that if they can make it more simplistic for this particular application, then I think it can only sort of be positive. But I guess when you look at some of the stories that have been in the media lately with with highlays, we've had a couple of um, guests on this podcast that have sort of of the opinion that highlays can cause damage um, to the innate uh, hyaluronic acid in the body. And people have, you know, reported sort of depressions after having things dissolved and whether that's just sort of people's imagination or perhaps it's they've had filler in their face for so long that when you dissolve it, actually... You've got older. You've gotten older and, you, and, <laughs> and, and people have forgotten what they... Or they haven't been, you know, they haven't been able to see their face ageing because they've been filled this whole time. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested to know what, what your thoughts are on, on that, Jenny, in terms of a lot of those claims that are being made and, and sort of have you had any experiences or reason to believe that there's validity to those sort of thoughts? Um, look, I think if a patient feels that that's their experience, uh, I think you've got to take that on board. Um, you know, my understanding from a scientific point of view that 
is that you know because your your own hyaluronic acid is constantly being turned over that there shouldn't be any long term harmful effects from from using highlays. But you know, as I said, there's there's plenty of anecdotal reports out there of patients complaining of just that very thing. But your point about maybe patients have had filler for long periods of time and they've lost sight of you know what they would actually look like with with none of that filler on board. Uh, I think that's probably more like it because, uh, you know, I mean, I've been injecting for 15 years, but I've got patients that I've been seeing over that entire time almost, and I'm a very conservative injector. I don't, I don't use large volumes, and I, I never have. But uh, you know, I, I've still got patients that I'm sure if I were to use a large amount of highlays on them, if all that filler were to go, that has slowly accumulated. Over the years, I think we'd see a massive change in what they look like. Yeah, yeah. I actually had my own experience of this about two months ago. <laughs> oh, right. I, I was, I don't know, I was just not happy with with. I, I think I got some puffiness from from filler over the years, sort of at the top of the cheek under the eye. So I just got a colleague to dissolve it, and I knew I would have that sort of you know wake up in the morning and look a bit tired moment because your filler's gone. But yeah, it, it's it is quite confronting. You know, I, I got a little bit of um, let's call it malar edema, like you know, it almost got revealed that I'd never knew I had, and I didn't have it pre filler. So, you know, there is this debate even in my mind of, well, is it still filler that's too superficial? Is there still filler there? Blah, blah, blah. So I just looked for the ultrasound, <laughs> which mm. was, you know, another benefit that we were just discussing. And I think it's just malar edema that I've, uh, you mm. know, d developed mm. over, I don't know, the last five years or so. You know, I've hit, well, I'll, we'll be oh. both 42 yeah, next week on must, the same day. It's You've aged during the podcast yes. with me. You've aged. Well, I've certainly got, well, <laughs> joking aside, uh, I, I can tell you, I look at the photos over COVID, I went grey. My beard just went <laughs> just totally grey. Uh, whereas pre-COVID, it was, you know, brown. So mm. things do change and they change rapidly and, and I'm sure stress and, and everything yeah. else make it worse. Yeah, so absolutely. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not convinced that the highlays we're using is dissolving faces or melting faces. But like you said, Jenny, it, that doesn't mean that the patient's experience of their face changing post dissolve, that, that, that doesn't mean that that shouldn't be addressed and be, you mm. know, be sympathetic about it. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I have to say I'm a lot more cautious of dissolving now. I've obviously we've got a consent form, but I, I, I'm almost saying to the patient, look, the pros and the cons are we leave you with this slight puff that you don't like. I agree that it's not ideal. Or are we comfortable with looking very tired with maybe something new happening with the risk of needing more filler and, and never mm. still getting it quite right? We, we have to yeah. look at both sides of the story before yeah. we dissolve. Yeah. So, yeah. I was, I was going to ask you, Jenny, what are your thoughts on um, sort of biostimulatory treatments? There's been a lot of hoo-ha and excitement around, you know, Profilo, which has launched onto the market. I think we've got like a nationwide shortage. People are you know, stealing and stabbing each other to get hold of this stuff. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, Sculpture's been around for a long time. Radius is there in the background. We're seeing a little bit of a re-emergence of those treatments. I think we've developed as an industry some better treatment protocols, dilution's better, um, reconstitution's better, depth is better. I think that people having an understanding of how they're working and um, I guess adjusting their technique um, to be more... I I guess, suited to this type of treatment, which is effectively like putting a fertilizer on your lawn rather mm. than trying to augment it. Um, but what are your thoughts? Do you use them? Um, where do they fit into your sort of treatment protocols? And um, in terms of patients who, you know, perhaps don't want to change their face, but just looking to address more more skin um, concerns um, and so on. 
look, I think that, I mean, I do use the biostimulator products um, and I, I they, they do seem to be having a bit of a renaissance at the moment. And I just wonder if that's not because, you know, we, we're probably finding that, you know, the hyaluronic acid dermal fillers do have limitations. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think that for patients that have been having fillers over many years, I mean, you get to a certain age and, and I'm of that age and, you know, the fillers don't necessarily cut it, mm. um, you know, and depending on, you know, what the quality of your skin is like, and all those sorts of things. I mean, I, I think there's an increase in place for the biostimulators. I mean, as far as Profilo is concerned, I mean, I, I you know, I've, obviously I've had Profilo, I've used Profilo. I, I think it's a really good treatment, but I, I think it's more injectable skincare. Mm. I think that it's a fantastic way of improving the quality of the skin. And, you know, when it comes down to it, who doesn't want better quality skin? But, you know, I, I feel like of the different sort of things as injectable practitioners that we have to look at for patients is, is you know, what's going to give them the best long-term result. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. And I think you get to a certain, sorry, Joe, I think you get to a certain age where, you know, high cheekbones and a chiseled jawline might actually make you look older. It draws attention to, because it's impossible to sort of stop mm -hmm. ageing with every single feature of your face. Um, or your skin. And I think that sometimes when you go for that hyper-augmented look or you're trying to hold on to a more youthful appearance rather than just looking great for your age, I actually think it can make you look older and draw draw mm. attention for different reasons. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. a, a facelift can look great, but you know that it's a facelift yeah. because when you're 60, you should have some sagging. Yeah. It, it's unusual to not. So even though you look amazing, it, it, it's almost... What, what you didn't want because everyone's going to go where you've had a facelift. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I, again, I think we're a little bit more accepting of that, that sort of thing these days. And yeah. I think when I first started doing aesthetic medicine, a lot of the patients, if you mentioned the word surgery, they, they'd say, oh, what? no, I'd never have surgery. That's mm. just not what I'm about. Because I think patients accept now that, you know, injectables can't do it all and lasers can't do it all and that there are some uh things that you know you just need surgery for so yeah. if, if that's a feature of your appearance that you want to change you know maybe you need to have surgery yeah well don't get me wrong when i'm 60 i'm having a facelift so <laughs> when you're getting a personality transplant <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly <laughs> full body transplant now to to end these uh injector diaries type episodes jenny we always ask uh, a couple of sort of recurring questions so i think i know the answer to these but i, I want to explore the why rather than the the, the, what? the the what what's your number one toxin and why uh well <clears throat> probably no surprise that my number one toxin at the moment is disport. Yes. Um, I use all the toxins and, um, you know, certainly I was very interested in the discussion you had with Neve and Stefania about toxin resistance. And, you know, I know there is a bit of a groundswell of support for, for using Xeom and, you know, because of that potential with, you know, may be uh, causing a secondary toxin resistance in the future. But, you know, I've, I've used Disport for a long time. And even though I do use all three brands, the reason that, you know, Disport's my go-to brand is that, um, 
you know, the patients can see the results that, that little bit more quickly. Mm. And uh, I just think it, it's nice that they're sort of seeing it a bit more quickly. So then they're more in tune with, with, with what's happening. And, you know, people lead very busy lives these days. And mm. it's, it's not uncommon for somebody to come in and go, all right, I've got this on in a week. I know I've left it a bit too late, but, you know, what can you do for me? And so Disport's great in mm. that sort of situation. Well, let me ask you this then. So you've you trained on Botox originally, you know, many years ago, yep. and, and obviously you've changed to Disport. What do you think that difference is exactly? Sort of if you if you keep the dosing equivalent, when does Disport kick in for your patients versus, say, a different brand? What, what would the difference be? Okay, so I haven't changed completely to Disport. I, I still use a lot of Botox. Um, you know, it, it, we used to have a price differential in our clinic between Botox and Disport, uh, which we actually don't anymore. And so that was one of the reasons that, you know, sometimes from a budgetary consideration, mm. patients would say, well, I, I want the one that's mm. a little bit cheaper. So we had that distinction because we wanted to be able to offer patients who are more budget conscious, mm. conscious you know, an equivalent mm sort of treatment but for a number of reasons we we now you know the the cost to us has risen so the cost to the patient is the same regardless of whether they have botox or disport uh we still have a lot of patients who are brand conscious and and request a specific brand yeah and you know if i if i felt like the brand that they were requesting wasn't going to do a good job obviously i'd try and talk them out of that brand but I feel like all of the brands that we've got, they do a good job. Yeah. And I think it's very minor nuances that, that distinguish between them. But, yeah, for me it's the fact that uh, you definitely see uh, some muscle relaxation kicking in a little bit sooner with Disport than with the other brands. Well, you'll be lucky. I think the end result is probably the same. Yeah. yeah. And um, what dilution do you use? I know we shouldn't talk about equivalents, but if we were sort of trying to convert units, do you do a two and a half to one Botox or a three to one compared to Botox for Disport? Oh, we do a three to one. Yeah. yeah three okay. to one. Yeah. yeah. And you excited to try the new stuff that's coming? I think coming? that's probably, well, that'll be interesting, won't it? Because, um, you know, I don't have a great understanding yet about the new toxins that we're getting. But, uh, you know, if, if they do work a little bit longer, I, I guess from a patient point of view, that's attractive to the patient. But, of course, I'm very, um, you know, risk averse. And, and, you know, the first thing I thought of when I heard about, you know, the fact that we're getting them pretty soon is that, okay, they might last longer, but does that mean any potential problems are going to last yeah. longer? So, you know, am I going to introduce them or are I going to be safe and stick with what I know and love? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It's almost a... Uh a mindset shift because let's say we had a toxin that only lasted for one month and I said, whoa, I can make it last for three. You'd back off and say, well, I'm going to stay with the one that lasts one month because I don't want a toasis mm. lasting for three months. So I, I, I don't know. I think if you're confident with your, you know, with your skill and, and what you're doing, I don't know if that would put me off, but that, that yeah. trickier patient mm. with heavy lids and, and, and so on, maybe I would patient? back off. What about first time patients? Cause I mean, even for experienced injectors, nailing someone's tox, especially when you're doing like foreheads and Correct. brow lifts and things like that. Like even the most experienced injector yeah. can, you know, yeah. make a mess of that the first time with that. Well, you know, also expectations. You might go, that's a fantastic toxin result. And the patient's like, I hate your guts. I feel like a TV screen. <laughs> yeah. I can't move my face. And so 
there's getting to understand that patient's face. So yeah. I think it's probably always prudent to, and we've got the ones coming out soon that kick in in like what, five minutes or something? And no, last something, two weeks. No, no, within <laughs> so, 24 hours. 24 hours. And I mean, so maybe that's where you start with your, your 24 mm-hmm. hour one, you get your dose right. You go, yep, right. You perfect it. Then you go, okay, cool. Now we've got you dialed in. Now we're happy to put you on. Well, the, I think that, uh, yeah. that that type E toxin that yeah. potentially will come that you know only lasts for two weeks. That'd be great for training courses. You could get all your mm. students back on day two of the course and be like, right, let's check everyone's results and see which bits you mm. missed and yeah. who got spocking, etc. So yeah. that would actually be a really cool training tool. Uh, and you know, and then the other thing is maybe we'll be using different toxins in different areas. Yeah, yeah, you that's know, true. Maybe if you are concerned about the heavy brows or the heavy lids or something like that, you'll go, okay, well, I'm going to use a shorter-acting one up here in case I have a problem. Mm. But, you know, I'm confident around here, so I'll use a longer-acting yep. one. Okay. Yeah. Um, so same question again, but for filler. I know we've got a lot more options for filler because you've got various um, lines within the same uh, brand. Um, but I guess what we're asking is what's your favourite and maybe – you know, most versatile one you use the most and, and sort of why. So it can be from any range, any 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 brand, any range. Um, well, I predominantly use the Restylane range of fillers, although I, I do have other um, brands in the clinic and I certainly, you know, pick my patient for some of the other mm. fillers that I use. You know, for tear troughs, I might use an alternative range. Um, but I use a lot of Restylane Refine mm-hmm. and Restylane Define, and they're, they're probably the two fillers that I would use the most. So what would they be equivalent to? Because I know we call them different things in different countries. What I have would... no idea. Jenny has to educate so us. So what would you call, I mean, yeah. So They keep changing Restylane the names. I can't come up with them all. Yeah. is in the OBT range from Restylane, so is Restylane Define. Right. And... Uh, what did Restylane Refine used to be? It was Emmavel, mm-hmm. maybe Emmavel or something or other. I can't remember. Yeah, it was the Emmavel range. But yeah, yep. it's terrible that I cannot remember what it used to be. What, what areas of the face are they are they mainly used for, the, the Define and Refine? So Restylane Refine, if you're, you know, talking about what the indication is, it's mainly fine lines mm-hmm. and, you know, you can use it in, in lips and, and those sort of areas, but it's sort of my go-to for like a what I call perioral smoothing. Um, you know, treating the whole of the area around the mouth before I actually you know would treat the lips themselves. Mm, yeah. And I, I you know do have a slightly older patient population. I don't treat a lot of younger patients, although some of the younger injectors that work with me do. Um, so it's it's a way of uh, you know providing perioral augmentation without, you know, the dreaded duck lips that, that everybody's <laughs> worried about. Well, why don't you try this? Because I've been trying it the last couple of weeks. Profilo off-label for perioral area. So I'm not chasing the lines, but I'm treating, mm. you know, the whole area. Because what I want is hydration, not volume. Yep. So I if I could get my hands on it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, in a couple of weeks, I, I, I've been confidently told it would be Soon, very soon. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Now, it's interesting when you talk to practitioners from other countries because they're using Profilo in all sorts of areas. And yeah. I think actually you're, you're right. I think there is a place for it um, in the perioral area because, it, it, you know, if you can improve fine lines and, and wrinkles and that sort of stuff without adding volume, I mean, that, that would really, as they say, be a game changer. Yeah, 100%. Now, uh, there aren't too many options here, but what's your favourite cannula make and size and why? 
Um, so I use the TSK cannulas um, and I, I use both the 25 and the 22 gauge. Uh, I probably would use more the, the shorter 25 gauge, the 40 millimetre cannula because, again, I am doing a lot of perioral type mm. restoration but uh-huh. in in the mid phase I, I tend to use the 50 millimeter and I still I still predominantly use the 25 gauge um I just use the thicker ones if I'm doing a more high risk area yeah fair enough and, and why do you like that range have you tried say soft fill or, or other ones yeah um I just find that I, it sort of glides through the tissue a bit a bit better you know I've tried all sorts of different cannulas i tried the pixel cannulas that um came with the gelderm products and i i, I didn't like those at all i must mm. admit i found that they were very, quite bendy yeah. and i didn't really like the bendy sort of sensation as i was using the cannula whereas I, I feel like you don't get that at all with the tsk and i mean this is sort of you know probably a bit naughty but i do bend my cannulas for yeah. a lot of my treatments mm. And, uh, you know, I have a colleague who had an experience with a, a cannula and it may well have been a TSK cannula. I can't remember where it actually broke off in the patient oh, um, God, and had to be surgically removed. Oh, jeez. Yeah, I hope she doesn't mind me telling that story. But um, <laughs> I just find because I do like to angle my cannulas slightly depending on what area I'm treating mm-hmm. that I trust the TSK cannulas. But, yeah. you know, I, I can't imagine that they they cause any of those sorts of issues sounds like a great episode of disasters and solutions yeah, for us exactly. we have to get her on yeah <laughs> um all right so this is a, a very polarizing question um and if you've listened to any of these other episodes you probably know what's coming um the aspiration question it's a very hotly debated topic you've got the the do's and the don't the doers and the donters is that a thing donters so what what are your thoughts on it obviously we've got a bit of a you know, a spin on that now with ultrasound, um, you know, there's a little bit more ability there to, to deal with things if they happen. But, you know, there seems to be two school of thoughts. Do it because there's nothing to lose. Others who think, what's the point? Because how accurate is it? And the needle's constantly sort of moving, you know, millimetres and, you know, you can sort of slip in and out of a vessel probably with, you know, a vibration in your hand potentially. So what are your thoughts and and why? Well, um, we actually, I was at a, actually a doctor's meeting last night. We had a journal club and we were actually talking about one of the <clears throat> um, consensus papers that was done in Australia about, you know, the value or otherwise of aspiration. I, I'm not an aspirator. Um, Sometime, you know, when I first learned to inject, I think we used to aspirate all the time. And I, I still have some of that old muscle memory, I think, sometimes that I do find myself <laughs> still doing that occasionally. But um, and, and certainly, interestingly, the doctors that we're training will often aspirate because they're giving, you know, lots of IM injections mm. and flu vaccines and COVID vaccines and that sort of stuff, and they're often in the habit of aspirating. But the reason that I, I you know, I don't aspirate for it, you know, probably – you know, all of the reasons that people usually discuss, but I, I think it just gives you a false sense of security and I think you can't mm. rely on a negative aspirate, you know, actually being a negative aspirate. And then I think if that then makes you think, okay, I'm not in a vessel, you know, I'm going to sort of do a big bolus of product in there, I mean, potentially, you know, as you know, that's disastrous. So I think it gives you a false sense of security. Yep. So, so you 
um, do you do what the some of those people in the consensus paper do, where they're sort of doing these little micro movements if you're doing a bolus? Is that your approach or not really? Uh, I try. You know, I, I try and always sort of think about, you know, where's the tip of my needle, where's the tip of my cannula, because I use both, um, and think about, you know, how much product I'm injecting and whether I'm injecting on the way in or injecting on the way out or, you know, doing a bolus while I'm in there. I probably would very rarely do, you know, much of a bolus these days. It's usually repositioning and I'm putting a little bit more product either adjacent or, you know, in the same mm. sort of area. So I like to think that I'm keeping the tip of my needle or the tip of my cannula moving. It would be interesting to see that on an ultrasound. Yeah, mm, uh, exactly. I'm not yeah. dexterous enough to do my ultrasound at the same time as I'm injecting. <laughs> right. well, yeah, fair enough. Now, what's your biggest mistake you've ever made and what did you learn from it? It could be technical, business, uh, you know, life, whatever. Oh, it's definitely a business mistake. I um, was invited to join an organisation that was set up by a medical practitioner and it was probably 12 or 13 years ago and, and this particular medical practitioner was a little bit entrepreneurial and uh, he decided, which is, you know, lots of people are doing this now um he decided to train some nurses and send them out into the field to inject and he'd started that process he'd developed a training program he had some nurses on board but what he had done because he had a surgical practice and you know it was a busy surgical practice is he'd partnered with some mates who were non-medical um you know and they came from various business fields and then uh, it's a very sad story, actually. He subsequently died. Oh, my God. Um, unexpectedly. Yeah, it was, it was awful. But, um, you know, because of that, they suddenly didn't have a doctor involved and needed a doctor that was involved to prescribe for the nurses and mm. to sort of mm. help with the training and, and help with the scripting and, and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, I was introduced to them by a friend um, and, you know, we went along, both of us being medicos and had a chat to them and, you know, it sounded almost too good to be true and they had all these projections about <laughs> how they were going to grow the business and all that sort of stuff and we put a little bit of money into it. Fortunately, it wasn't a lot of money and uh, it, it just didn't work, unfortunately. And, uh, look, as I said, fortunately, we didn't put a lot of money into it and it was actually, I can say now, a good learning experience as in that we should have done more research, we should have really thought about that business model and we should have thought about what the different roles of the different people in the organisation were because we had some, you know, people from a business background that, you know, knew their stuff um, but they didn't know their medical stuff and yeah. they had those of us from a medical background who probably didn't know their business stuff well mm. enough and it was a good concept and, they tried to keep it going, but we just weren't on the same page and it just didn't work yeah, out. It's uh, always difficult. It's such a nuanced industry. And even if you've got all the business skills in the world, appreciating what you guys do um, and the nuances of this industry and all things that can go wrong, sometimes lost on these very, very smart business people who may have come from like finance or, you know, banking backgrounds or whatever it is. There's there's something that's lost there. Yeah. I think that you need, you kind of need to have a an appreciation and, a, and a, at least a, a, a certain level of knowledge of what's involved, I think, because there are 
nuances. Yeah. Well, if you're an injector mm. out there, just I call think- David. Yeah. He'll, he'll help you. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we all went in, into it with with good yeah. intentions, but you know, at the end of the day, uh, we weren't on the same page, and yep. you know, the the responsibilities of different people just it just didn't mesh, unfortunately. Yeah. But okay. it, you know, it was a bit of an expensive uh, mistake. Yeah. Well, we only learn from, we only learn when we make a mistake. Unfortunately, we're not really good at learning from success. The sort of arrogance can kick in and sort of sometimes it takes a slap in the face and a bit of humble pie to make us reflect and, and do things better. To appreciate the sweet, you need to understand bitter. Oh, there you go. There you go. There you go. Very <laughs> philosophical. Last question. Um, what has been the most, well, influential or useful book or or maybe course or that po- you've been on as an po- injector or, 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 or podcast? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> no, keep it to book or course. Uh, well... I think probably the course that I've done that's helped me the most, which, you know, is not what most injectors would be doing, is I did a diploma of dermatology um, probably about five or six years ago. Mm -hmm. And the reason I did that was that I just found that a lot of the patients I was seeing were coming to me for various aesthetic things, but, you know, I was also treating a lot of skin Things as well, and I, I felt like I, even though I was from a general practice and a skin cancer background, and I knew a lot about the sort of GP skin stuff and um, you know skin cancer skin stuff, I just felt like there was something lacking. Mm-hmm. And because I, I literally spend all day speaking to people about their skin, I just felt like I, I needed to to know a bit more about dermatology and. Uh, I needed to, you know, be able to prescribe a bit better for certain skin conditions and that sort of thing. So uh, that's probably the thing that helped me the most. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up Chapter 10 of the Injector Diaries. Thank you, Jenny, for sharing, you know, your story and your time and your experiences. It's always valuable to, you know, get a different practitioner, GPs, nurses, nurse practitioners, dentists. We've all got you know, different backgrounds and, and things that we can contribute. Jenny, any, any parting comments? Uh, what was your favourite podcast episode? You, you've obviously listened to one. <laughs> Have you listened to any others? I've listened to quite a few, actually. I mean, I, I listen to the ones with, you know, people that I know. So I listened to the one the other day with Simone. Yes. Um, okay. Dorian, I actually did listen to the one, was, was it last week, with um, Bob Ack? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. From, um, yeah. I that that was really really interesting from you know my point of view as a clinic owner and a, a doctor that's you know working in this space it was really really interesting to me to hear about his perspective of of you know the the way that he came into the industry and and his approach to laser clinics and uh, yeah I, I found that really 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 fascinating there are obviously bits of it that I didn't agree with. Yep. Um, and bits of it that, yeah, I completely agreed with. So I, yep. I, I really enjoyed that one from, from a, uh, you know, listening to a non-medico. From from my perspective, it's it's always really good to get somebody else's opinion about where our industry is going. Yeah, that's awesome. We, we try and have different people on from different parts of the industry, business, injecting. Um, it's a crazy industry we're involved in, and it's I think it's only going to get bigger more interesting potentially more complicated but um i think we're heading in the right direction yes well thank you again jenny and uh, we shall speak soon thank you for your time all right Thanks take care so bye bye see, see you later. later 
for our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 